Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I can't believe I actually asked somebody to play a cheap trick song on my show, but that's what we've come to because it so perfectly encapsulates at least one of the big questions uh, that is brought up in the the book uh, by our guest today, Mark Leibovich. The book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. And yeah, can you surrender and not give yourself away? This is, in many respects, a very profound existential question that's explored over and over again. I should say Mark Leibovich has uh, been writing about politics for a long, long time, for about 10 years in the New York Times magazine. If you were the kind of person who follows politics Word would get around, like, right away, oh, there's a Leibovich piece today. you got to read the Leibovich piece. And so now those Leibovich pieces are going to be in the Atlantic. But, Mark, thanks very much for joining us today to talk about this book. Colin, thanks for having me. And a great intro music. I loved it. Um, <laughs> it's also it's appropriate because it's surrender. But, you know, in some ways, covering Washington is all a cheap trick, right? <laughs> I love what you did there. All right. So, yeah. you know, in a way, <laughs> this has been – you're dealing with something that's been a mystery for a long time. And, and as I've – as I'm reading your book, I'm thinking there's really kind of an interesting analogy to COVID, right? There's a, there's a way in which she's like, wow, I saw Elise Stefanik the other day. She looked so great. She was so healthy. You know, but I just heard she's got COVID, you know? <laughs> and there's a way in which, you know, so Stefanik's an example because she didn't seem to, she seemed to be a little bit more of a traditional Paul Ryan policy-driven conservative. Suddenly she's like totally trumped out. Bill Barr, I, I, we'll talk about them a little bit more specifically as we go along here. Bill Barr is another example of a guy who really had kind of a sterling reputation going into yeah. all of this. And, and like he got COVID, you know, suddenly yeah. he's just doing stuff <laughs> that, that you wouldn't do unless you had this mysterious infection. So, and I take it that's really the driving force behind writing this book, right? Like what happens to these people? Yeah. What happens to these people? I mean, that's, that's, a first of all, yes, it, there, the analogies are kind of everywhere. I mean, both with COVID itself, because, you know, one day someone is healthy and they're not, as, as you mentioned, uh, even with like vaccines, I mean, just what happens to these people, right? I mean, what is overtaking them? And what I wanted to do with this book was essentially um, try to make it clear as early on as possible that this was not your regular Trump book. There's no shortage of Trump books out there about Donald Trump as a person, as a character study, such as it is, uh, White House, intrigue, bio, whatever you want to call it. The question I just kept 
asking myself and getting asked and that is asked around political circles and has been for you know a solid six seven years now is what is it that is making these people around him in the republican party essentially just surrender over and over and over again to someone they have legitimate contempt for at least privately deep fear of for whatever reason and have transformed themselves and their party into this cult of personalities kind of become a cliche but but ultimately it is it is a product of what people in the party what the putative leaders of the party have been willing to countenance and willing to submit to and lo and behold this is why we're here because donald trump did not happen in a vacuum and he did not have to happen and the republican party put him in charge only because, you know, he took charge and they wouldn't do anything to stop him. So here we are. So let me ask you the sort of the uh, kind of um, the opposite narrative question. So there's the what we're sort of saying is that this is kind of a sui generis situation. There's really never been a politician like Trump. I think that's a fair statement. And he has an effect on on traditional legacy politicians that nobody else has ever had before. Now, the counter argument would be, well, but yeah, is, is this a cliff or is it a gradient? And the counter argument would be that if Karl Rove or somebody said to Ron Suskin, you know, all those years ago, well, you're part of the reality-based community. Like, that's a bad thing, right. you know? And and that, you know, years later, you've got Mitch McConnell still in the absence of Trump, you know, really kind of defying the rules and conventions of the Senate, not letting Merrick Garland get a confirmation hearing that, in a way, at least parts of the Republican Party had, in fact, kind of left the or changed maybe the dimensions of the Overton window, things that were formerly unacceptable were becoming acceptable before Trump arrives on the scene. Yeah, I mean, Republican Party has been violating all kinds of spoken and unspoken norms, rules for a number of years. You're right. You mentioned Merrick Garland. I mean, that was a biggie, right? I mean, Mitt McConnell in 2016 basically said, okay, a president of the other party can no longer um, nominate a Supreme Court justice when the Senate is in control of the other party. And that was that. And th- there was a blockade, and he lifted the blockade, obviously, when it came time to put, you know, Amy Coney Barrett in four years later in the, you know, even more extreme situation the other direction. They were messing with the debt ceiling, Republicans were during Obama. They were doing things like, you know, re- really sort of testing the limits of character assassination under Newt Gingrich and so forth. So, yes, I mean, certainly the, the weaknesses and the foundations of decency and norms and and sort of government as we knew it had been weakened by years of this. And, and Trump just sort of jumped through a major, major, major uh, hole that was opening up in the foundation and sort of tore the whole house down. So, yes, you're right. I mean, I think Trump was an incredible accelerator to this you know, and I think he was the cause of of many other things, but but ultimately, yes, the the pieces were in place long before he came along. Nonetheless, in 2015 and 2016, the the response among kind of mainstream Republicans was, for the most part, revulsion. Revulsion sometimes by people who were also seeking that nomination, the Rubios, mm-hmm. the Cruises, et cetera, but also just people in general within the party were saying, no, you know, <laughs> this, yeah. isn't, this isn't right. This isn't somebody who could ever be president. And I mean, Mark, one of the other analogies to COVID is that you can get it, you can get over it, and then you can get it again. Yeah. And it's a sort of hop on, hop off tourist bus. And yeah. so I don't think anybody's maybe hopped on and hopped off or been reinfected so many times 
as Lindsey Graham. Let's hear two clips from Lindsey Graham. You're going to hear uh, the first one's from January 6th of 2021. The second one is almost exactly a year later. Trump and I, we've had a hell of a journey. I hate it being this way. Oh, my God, I hate it. From my point of view, he's been a consequential president. But today, first thing you'll see, all I can say is uh, count me out. Enough is enough. If you want to be a Republican leader uh, in the House or the Senate, you have to have a working relationship with President Donald Trump. He's the most consequential Republican since Ronald Reagan. It's his nomination if he wants it, and I think he'll get reelected in 2024. Now, I'm not going to vote for anybody for leader of the Senate as a Republican unless they can prove to me that they can advocate an American first agenda and have a working relationship with President Trump, because if you can't do that, you will fail. Mark, obviously, this kind of tick-tocking back and forth uh, or toggling back and forth is a feature, not a bug of Lindsey Graham, right? I mean, he started out as one of the mainstream Republicans who was repulsed by Trump. I mean, his lineage included being part of the so-called Three Amigos with John McCain and Joe Lieberman, you know, being this this kind of centrist, consensus-seeking group of people. Trump seems like the opposite of that. So there's a sense in which we could understand (laughs) Lindsey Graham better. We know a lot more about the disease we're discussing. So tell us, uh, what did you learn in this whole process of interviewing Lindsey Graham and, and trying to figure him out? Yeah, I mean, first of all, those two clips were separated by just, I think, a matter of months, right? I mean, one was obviously January 6th, the night of. Everyone was sort of traumatized by what had happened that day, and, and Lindsay had had enough. He was washing his hands of of this guy, and then, lo and behold, a few months later, he was, he was saying what he said in the second clip. I mean, you know, to sort of extend the analogy, maybe to its last point, I mean, Lindsey Graham... <laughs> is kind of the poster child for long COVID, right? <laughs> it was Trumpy and strain and the, uh, you know, Omicron, whatever. There's some, there's got to be some fancy way of saying Trumpy and strain. But no, I mean, Graham keeps exhibiting new and bizarre and extreme, in some cases, symptoms that, you know, I guess you could see coming because he's, he, like COVID, has has just mutated in any number of different directions. But, but I've spent a lot of time with him, talked to him a lot. He's truly a Washington character in the most tortured sense. He is, um, as one of his Senate Senate colleagues told me, uh, probably the U.S. senator most terrified of not being in the U.S. Senate. He he will do anything to get elected. He said explicitly to me, if you don't want to be reelected, you're in the wrong business. I will do any of this to be relevant. And. Lindsey Graham doesn't, you know, doesn't have a family to go back to, doesn't seem to have hobbies outside of life in the U.S. Senate. And he gets great emotional sustenance from being on the golf course with Donald Trump. And and he also gets great political sustenance from because South Carolina, which he represents in the Senate, is a bright red state. So uh, he loves being, as he says, at the dice table. There is a really kind of sad but also incredibly addictive spell that, that someone like Graham is cast with and, and he will just do anything to sort of keep that juice coming and and trump sort of became like his new alpha dog he says i like alpha dogs and his alpha dog before 
Donald Trump was John McCain, who despised Donald Trump and vice versa. So that sort of gives you a sense of the lengths that, that Lindsey Graham was willing to go. And he talked pretty openly about them when I was reporting the book. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the fungibility of his loyalty is astonishing. I mean, he was just such a McCain guy, you know, and then, you know, Trump does this whole riff about how McCain's not even a real war hero because he got caught yeah. and all this. I mean, it's just so, so disrespectful and doesn't yeah. even mean anything. But, you know, you mentioned the golf course. There was that moment. I, I can't place it the year, but it would have been, you know, probably 17, 18, where Graham has been critical of Trump and he goes golfing with Trump and he comes back and he's like in a really different frame of mind. And one of the things that people thought at the time and reading your book, I I now think otherwise, is Trump said something to him like, we have video of you doing X, Y, Z. You know, there was a sense like you couldn't have that kind of reversal unless you'd been told something that's like out of an HBO succession episode or something. Uh, And, and I, you know, you make the case, he makes the case to you that it's no, as you're suggesting, it's really about relevance, that he's never been so relevant as when he affixed himself like a pilot fish to Donald Trump. Right. Exactly. No, I mean, look, that is the sort of cinematic explanation for this. You can kind of snap your fingers and say, oh, okay, well, they have something on him. And there was this scene um, in the movie, the, the as yet unwritten, but, you know, easily we could see movie in, um, that is going to be told of these years from in a parking structure or something like that, where Lindsey Graham sees exactly what the White House has on him. And every decision he makes follows from there. Look, he is a uniquely tortured figure. I I don't claim to have a read on him, except that he feeds off the kind of self-perpetuation machine that drives Washington. And, you know, that's sort of what we've been living under in a very kind of scary way for a number of years now. But, But ultimately, it, it is kind of a familiar and age-old Washington story about people doing whatever it takes to make Washington work for them. And when Donald Trump was the king and is the king of the Republican Party, he exacts a very, very big price if you want to play in that in that park. And, and Lindsey Graham, again, is the emblematic example of this. It does seem as though the willingness to switch sides from, say, McCain to Trump or the willingness to sort of Forgive and forget is not really the right term, but one of the other figures, you know, who's very important in your book is Ted Cruz. We're just going to play another clip for you. You can just react to it. But so Ted Cruz, as people may remember during the campaign season, I mean, Trump called his wife ugly and then said he was going to spill the beans about her. Then he said, you know, citing the National Enquirer as his source and, mm-hmm. and, and and parenthetically adding that he was amazed the National Enquirer didn't win more Pulitzers, you know, because they got the OJ thing, they got this thing. But anyway, yeah. citing that as a source that Trump's father had something to do with Lee Harvey Oswald and the assassination of JFK. And none of that, although it was, you know, it, it elicited some rebukes from Cruz during the campaign. But mm-hmm. here's how Cruz sounds now. October 2022 on the increasingly important political uh, show, The View. In 2016, we had a primary where Donald Trump and I beat the living crap out of each other. I'll tell you, Heidi laughed when he said that. My father laughed, by the way. My dad didn't just kill Kennedy. He's got Jimmy Hoffa buried in the backyard. It was (laughs) idiotic. And we went after each other, and at the end of the day, he won. And I had a decision to make in November of 2016. He'd been elected president. I got a responsibility to represent 30 million Texans. I could have decided my feelings are hurt, I'm going to take the ball and go home and not do my job. But if I was prepared to do that, 
I better be prepared to resign from my job because I have a responsibility. So what I did is I, is I went and said, listen, we have an opportunity to make a difference for this country, and I want to roll up my sleeves and lead the fight to actually deliver on promises. I mean, in, Mark, in a way, that is a sort of plausible argument that, you know, you can say, look, somebody gets elected president and I'm from the same party. And so I roll up my sleeves, as Ted Cruz says, and, you know, and I do what I can. I mean, that's Ted Cruz, in, in a way, making a plausible case for forgiving and forgetting. And, but what do you make a, of that statement right now? Uh, there's a lot to unpack with that. I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it is a plausible case, right? He sounds like he is being an adult. He sounds like he is, uh, okay, I'm going to make this work. I have a duty to 30 million Texans and so forth. But what he's not saying is that he, he does not have a duty. He doesn't have any fealty to the principles that brought him to that point, right? He is completely fungible. And yes, he sounded um, you know, he had great certitude. He he obviously had probably given and certainly rehearsed that answer many, many, many times over the years. But uh, yes, I mean, the price of, of submission in this case is forfeiting your pride, forfeiting what you believe. And, you know, he mentioned the prospect of resigning his position. Now, you could argue that that would be honorable. You could argue that if your position requires you to uh, violate you know, every principle you stood for, every, you know, moral principle you stood for, you know, basically um, betray your wife, you know, not stand up to her, for her and your father and your family and so forth. Um, do, do you really need this job? Do you really need the parking space? I mean, you know, you could probably make more money doing something else. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm always struck by how the fate of losing one's job is, is considered so unthinkable to people because fr quite frankly, the people I know in this business, you know, the Republicans who are out of office now seem a hell of a lot happier and, and frankly, more admirable, um, not always admirable, but largely admirable than these folks who were doing everything they can to sort of keep their parking space. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's a good answer. It's probably the only answer. Um, and look, he got some laughs and, you know, it was cute. And he was self-deprecating. He kind of hit all the right notes. But I still don't think it's it's terribly becoming at all. And, and I also don't, you know, I don't think it says a lot about Ted Cruz. And, you know, frankly, I'm sure he doesn't care about what I think. But, but I think it, it's still, I don't think it changes anything from what he has been willing to do to sort of be in the good graces of Donald Trump and the party that is, it exists today. One of the things that strikes me, and I went back and I was watching, I guess it was the clip of the second time uh, Trump had kind of stated that whole idea about uh, about Cruz's father maybe being involved in the Kennedy assassination. It, it, he's, he's doing it in some official capacity, and Mike Pence or a life-size mannequin of Mike Pence is standing there like right in the background, <laughs> unflinching it. And I think the thing that people tend to forget, people who are troubled or appalled by Trump and Trumpism is that he makes it fun, right? There's something fun about this whole thing. <laughs> if you just sort of strip it all of its of its implications and its context, you know, mm -hmm. he, he it's fun. I mean, there's a way in which if DeSantis tries to run for president as a less funny, angry Trumpist, the mm -hmm. same playbook, but none of the mirth and fun. I don't think he's going to get very far. No, I don't think so either. I mean, I think, you know, he, his personality, I mean, is, is, is somewhat on the level of Ted Cruz, I think. I mean, I, I do believe that 
you know, I, I wouldn't call Trump fun. I think there's, there's, I don't, I mean, this is personal. And yeah, no, he's not fun for me, but he's fun. No, I know it's not fun for you and probably a lot of the But he's fun for the people who like it, you know? Yeah, he's he's a showman, he's entertaining, he says bizarre stuff, Um, he's different, he, you know, for all the obvious reasons. But no, I mean, Ron DeSantis, who people have kind of tried to posit as the de facto grown-up in the party, the person who, you know, will be the next iteration of Trump. I mean, he he does not, I don't think he's going to scale well at all. He is someone that that people in the party who know him don't particularly care for. He's not very comfortable in his own skin. And Donald Trump tends to make pretty, pretty short work of, of people like that. I mean, Ted Cruz kind of being a great example, uh, Marco Rubio uh, in 2016. So I, I don't think DeSantis would do well if he ran against Trump. And I don't think he would wear well um, once people around the country get to know him. But again, though, I mean, think of where, think of the sort of the bar that's been extended at this point. I mean, you know, Ron DeSantis, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, is it just sort of an alternative version of the quote unquote fun that we have now? I mean, is it going to be a different version in which you sort of send um, poor refugees to on a plane and send them up to New York or Martha's Vineyard or Chicago or whatever? I mean, you know, I guess you sort of define your own fun in this party. <laughs> All right. So we're talking to Mark Leibovich. Uh, the new book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and talk more about these mysteries. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
All right, we're talking to Mark Leibovich, a longtime political writer. His new book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. So I still want to sort of scratch my nail along the side of this strange thing that we've seen happen. And so there are people, that, like the ones we've talked about, I mean, Lindsey Graham, as you say, in his just desperation to maintain his place in the Senate. Cruz, you know, I mean, you quote Al Franken as saying, you know, I like Ted Cruz more than almost anybody else in the Senate. And I hate Ted Cruz. Um, Important caveat. Right. I think there's – Frank may have also said at one point in response to the question, why do people take such an instant dislike to Ted Cruz? He says it takes time. It saves time. So you have people like that. But then you have people who don't seem like that. I mean the top of the show we mentioned Elise Stefanik who seemed like she was a little bit more of a kind of ideological policy-driven movement conservative in the style of Paul Ryan. Maybe we start with her. She's really interesting, right? I mean, she's she has just gone from that to being completely imbued in the current kind of Trump-driven worldview. Yeah, I mean, Elise Stefanik is kind of next level here. I mean, in, in that she was not well-known. I mean, she never ran for president, but a deeply ambitious. Um, and she was always held up by Republicans, especially in the House in the kind of early Trump years and the when Paul Ryan was Speaker of the House as the future of the party. I mean, this is someone who, you know, she was not really down with Trump. She endorsed Rubio in 16. She's policy-driven. She has been active in trying to get women into the Republican Party. Um, she went to Harvard. I mean, she, you know, she on paper was exactly kind of the fantasy next generation Republican that, that the leaders of the party or the Paul Ryan like leaders of the party were trying to attract and trying to elevate. And um, Paul Ryan took a great interest in her, the then Speaker of the House. Paul Ryan then quit as Speaker of the House. He did not have a very easy time of it, uh, certainly with Trump. And Stefanik was kind of left out on her own. And and not only that, by the way, Stefanik would always list as her really her idol in the um in the House was Liz Cheney. I mean, she twice nominated Liz Cheney to be chairman of the Republican conference, which is the number three position in the in the in the conference, in the Republican conference, you know, which she obviously lost after she dared defy Donald Trump um early last year. So Stefanik, again, kind of a poster child. And and then all of a sudden, starting around Trump's first impeachment in late 2019, Stefanik was on the uh, impeachment committee, which was essentially the intelligence committee. And I remember sitting in that room thinking, okay, well, you know, finally, you know, there's all these kind of um, crackpots on the Republican side of the committee, like Louis Gohmert and Jim Jordan, and they were going to make a lot of noise. But here we have a thoughtful one who theoretically would know better. But I remember on day one, she just sort of immediately um, goes to the talking points and was defending Trump and was making, you know, sort of vicious attacks against the chairman of the committee, Adam Schiff. And uh, we were off and we saw the the birth of a of a completely new young star in the Trumpist um, you know, stratosphere, as opposed to, you know, the sort of traditional, you know, maybe next generation Republican stratosphere, because she saw where the future was and she made her deal. And And that's how you see it. She saw oh, where the future was. That, there's no question about it. There is like, I mean, Lou Stefanik is, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's not even subtle with a lot of these folks. I mean, I was, um, I was amazed. I mean, again, in reporting the book and talking to a lot of these people, it was amazing to sort of see up close what they were willing to say with, with a straight face, which was often just 180 degrees, you know, the person I'd always been led to believe and always been led to think, and they had led me to believe that they were. And again, at least Stefanik is a classic example, not only of someone who who flipped 180 degrees, but also someone who clearly knows better. 
and who had done everything in her life sort of leading up to 2019, showing that she was a different person. You know, the amazing part of all this is the degree to which it's currently still kind of the key that unlocks doors. Here, I mean, we're days away from the 2022 midterms. And I'll just quickly tell you a story here from Connecticut. Uh, Dick Blumenthal is up for re-election. And his opponent is a woman named Leora Levy. Uh, she's a woman who like worked with inside inside the party, like nine years of kind of intra-party service, uh, mm-hmm. including a, at the national level. And she won a primary in August, which is a really bad time to have a primary, and people don't vote that much. She collected all of forty-seven thousand votes in order to win this primary over um, a longtime legislator, Themis Claris, who probably would have given Blumenthal a much tougher run in, in Connecticut. But uh, and 47,000 votes, just to put that in context, the last time Blumenthal ran six years ago, he got a million votes in the general election. So 47,000 right. votes is not a lot to build on. But – and I, I never cite internals because I don't right. – well, for the same reason you never cite internals probably. Yeah. But yeah. I will tell you that the word coming back from the internals was that she was trailing and Trump endorsed her in a very yeah. public way, and it flipped the numbers over. Like if yeah. they were 40-20, they turned it to 20-40, the other direction. It, it instantly did it. There couldn't be any question about what had made this change in the momentum and the composition of the polls. And I'm sure you've heard stories like that from around the country here in 2020. Around the country, yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, and, you know, obviously, Connecticut's a blue state, too. I mean, I, you know, obviously, you know, Republicans are very Trumpy pretty much everywhere, but um, no, I mean, that is an extremely common story and, and Trump proved to be, you know, the magic bullet, you know, over and over and over again in, uh, certainly Republican primaries. Now, you know, the question is, how is that going to, you know, what's that going to look in a general election? And, you know, a few days away, it certainly looks like Republicans could make some serious, um, gains and, and that in a way would, would vindicate all of it. Right. I mean, you know, at least I would take it as a vindication that the Trump, you know, not only is all powerful, but but we must continue to kowtow to him and let him set the agenda and let him lead us around by the nose. Well, from the point of view and, and the framework of your book, too, the vindication would be, I mean, you know, I, I think we could hear the dog whistle that Mitch McConnell was blowing when he was sort of saying quality of candidates is a real problem. Yes. You know, what he's saying yeah. is these, all these Trumpy people like Herschel Walker and Dr. Oz yeah. and, you know, that's what he means by quality of candidates. And so yep. if this turns out to be a successful strategy, one of the people who will be kind of devindicated will be Mitch McConnell in one of his rare moments of poking his hat out of his shell and kind of <laughs> suggesting maybe Trumpism isn't the way to go. Yeah, in a weird way, it's funny because the, the price of being de-vindicated in Mitch McConnell's case is also probably going to get you to uh, the Senate Majority Leader role again, right? So, you know, ask Mitch McConnell on, um, you know, on, in the days after next week, you know, if it's a deal he'd probably take and he'd probably say, sure, because nothing's more important than being having the title of Senate Majority Leader if you're Mitch McConnell. So, again... It's a depressing story, right? Um, now, it, it, granted, this, this is a very fun book. I've said this before. Um, it, you will laugh. You know, there, there's there's there are some there are some fun stories here. But no, I mean, this is where one of our two major parties is not only trending but also kind of empowering, right? I mean, this is they seem to be in a position to do very well next week, which could propel them into God knows what their future would look like, and God knows what our future would look like. 
So, by the way, I want to verify that this is a very fun book and a very funny book, and there's there's <laughs> incredible stories and even just your descriptions of people. I don't know, like you call Stephen Miller Trump's droopy-eyed d- deportation uh, deportation fetishist. zealot. Yeah, I've gotten a lot of good feedback on that. Um, so, just these little tossed-off descriptions of people are very enjoyable. But yeah. you know, I when wonder- you're putting your head in the oven, you can enjoy tossed-off descriptions <laughs> like that. I guess that's well. You know, f- to that point. You seem to have been able to get just about everybody to talk to you. Maybe could you say something about that? I mean, you said apropos of Stefanik, it's sort of amazing what people will say to you. Yeah. (laughs) But Um, I mean, it's also amazing that people are willing to talk to you. I mean, that's kind of the story of your career in a way. But in in this context, it would seem like it would be good advice for people to just not to take your calls. Yeah. I mean, first of all, to be clear, Stefanik herself didn't talk to me. I, I, um, I didn't have any luck getting to her. But I had... A fair amount of luck getting most people to talk to me um, that I wrote about. And that's, yeah, it's been one of the enduring mysteries of my career. Um, because, you know, when you're a reporter, you can't hide. I mean, your work is out there. You can, everyone can stick my name into Google and see what I've written before. I, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, it obviously helped to be attached to the New York Times for, for 16 years and the Washington Post for 10 years before that. So I have a lot of kind of... Uh, uh, I don't know, institutional uh, backing behind me at, at papers that had a lot of prestige among politicians and um, among a lot of sort of high um, interest readers. But but I also think that, that look, politicians have big egos. They think that they can charm anyone. And, and that includes me. And and look, I mean, I'm, I'm human. I can be charmed. I can be won over. I can, you know, I try to see the good in people, but I also try to see the honest in people. And, and um, the picture is not always pretty. And, and I certainly have a have a cache full of very, very angry letters and emails and texts and tweets um, over the years to, to prove that. But uh, the short answer, Colin, is I have no idea why they talked to me. But um, if I write the book again, uh, I might have a harder time. But but then again, I might not. I mean, if past his prologue, and I've written some tough stories and some tough books, and um, for, for whatever reason, they still invite me to lunch. Well, we live in such a consequence-free environment, too. I mean, you know, uh, Trump the other day, he was like, criticizing McConnell and he said like horrible stuff about McConnell's wife and made what seemed like kind of an anti-Asian slur about her. And, oh, absolutely. and yeah. it's, you know, there's just are no consequences for anything. So why should Mark Leibovich have consequences? Like nobody else gets well, in trouble. Yeah, I would say, I would say that I play in a different playground. I mean, I think if you're a Republican um, and, you know, I don't think, you know, Donald Trump cares if anyone out there thinks that he said some racist stuff about, you know, Mitch McConnell's wife. I mean, um, you know, if I lose the respect of of politicians and journalists and, you know, commentators, whatever, that that actually take me and my publications and my outlet seriously, um, I'm going to be out of a job really, really quickly. So I, I like to think, and obviously the media comes under a great deal of criticism, much of it well-deserved, but, you know, our, our job is to try to uphold standards, even in an environment where the nothing matters and consequence freeness of, of what a lot of these people are, are living through um, doesn't seem to uh, lose them their jobs or their prides or have them, you know, hiding under the bed in the fetal position. I mean, look, if I were caught in the number of lies and embarrassments that that a lot of these people are caught in, I mean... As someone who was raised on, you know, embarrassment and shame and capability of that, um, I wouldn't want to come out. I would resign. I would be disgraced. I wouldn't feel good. I wouldn't want to do this anymore. But obviously, again, that's a different set of rules that that I operate on and that a lot of people or people I still respect operate under. But but that's not always the case when we're we're trying to write about people. 
All right, so we're talking to Mark Leibovich. The new book is uh, Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. This conversation is going way too fast. I need another hour, but I won't get one. We'll take a break. We'll come back, and we'll have one final segment. We're back. This is our final segment. i got to say some thank yous, uh, starting with Kat Pastor. She's our technical producer. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe uh, uh, show is Lily Tyson, and she uh, is the producer of this particular episode. We're talking to Mark Leibovich. His new book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. So, Mark, at a certain point, you, you kind of look at January 6th, where this is sort of all of this stuff, all of this attempts to humor Donald Trump or to be a, a caretaker of the office and and try to preserve certain responsible principles while this, you know, madman is running around the White House and all the other rationales kind of should maybe go up in smoke. Uh, we actually have a lot of the same people that you're writing about under attack. They can hear people pounding on doors trying to get at them. There are people, as Nancy Pelosi said, making poo-poo uh, in, in the hall yeah. of the House. You know, I mean, and there's no question. One of the things the January 6th committee has been at pains to establish is there's no question about why that's happening, who's responsible for it. Uh, let's hear a conversation between Liz Cheney uh, and a guy named Stephen. Ayers, uh, one of the people who was arrested on that day, I think for disorderly conduct or disturbing the peace or something, uh, but he testified to the committee kind of why he was there. Would it have made a difference to you to know that President Trump himself had no evidence of widespread fraud? Oh, definitely. You know, um, who knows? I may not have come, come down here then, you know. So, Mark, that's a big part of the message of the committee's work is that these people are there because Trump told them to come there. And he also told them to doubt the results of the election. And so we have this incredible spectacle of, you know, I mean, Kevin McCarthy supposedly getting into this screaming conversation on the phone with Trump, this expletive profanity filled conversation. But I mean, really, this ought to be a deal breaker. And we hear we heard at the beginning of the show, Lindsey Graham, when the deal was temporarily broken, as far as he was concerned, but not permanently broken. But maybe you could just say a little bit about this. This ought to be the moment where the fruits of all this are so clearly poisonous and dangerous that people yeah. need to back away. Yeah, you would think. I mean, in a way, I mean, for as harrowing and depressing as January 6th was, um, I had a congressman, or Democratic congressman say this to me. What was even more depressing was late in the day after all this had gone down you saw basically a, a kind of slow walk back to their corner by republicans and and look 157 republicans in the house and senate voted against joe biden's certification i suspect you know none of them or very very few of them truly believing that then there was any cause to do that i mean and look again i mean most of them are up on the ballot again and most of them will be reelected next week but i mean Yes. I mean, the, the idea that that things could revert to 
the kind of perverse ver perverse version of normal so quickly is is in some ways scarier than the event itself and you know one of the things that that told me and i remember talking to a bunch of people right around this time when it did look like hey maybe the fever will break um is you know starting a week later when kevin mccarthy went down to to mar-a-lago a week after or eight days after joe biden was inaugurated to make nice with donald trump and to kiss his ring um and to essentially you know kickstart the rehabilitation of donald trump and so much as he was he was a pariah at that moment within his party you know it was clear that, that the fever was not going to break and not only that there's kind of this law that it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and Lo and behold, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, but a few days ago, you know, Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's mm -hmm. husband, was attacked. He's an 82-year-old, you know, husband of Nancy Pelosi, was attacked at his home in San Francisco with a hammer-wielding, you know, maniac who uh, apparently loves Donald Trump and was on some kind of warpath in, in defense of him. And, 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 you know, these things do happen these days, but what had never happened before was the level of you know, even jocularity and, and almost complete unremorse by so many leading or a parade of leading Republican figures in the House and the Senate and governor's offices, you know, young stars. I mean, Trump himself, you kind of come to expect it. But yeah, I mean, this is this is the next iteration. You can't even, in most cases, you know, step outside yourself and be a human being when an 82-year-old man is, you know, is attacked in his home in the middle of the night. So uh, again, the, the sort of question is, what will this all look like in a few months? And I remember a long time ago, Colin, I, I used to be a technology reporter in Silicon Valley, and there's this thing called Moore's Law, which is uh, it was started by the Intel, one of the Intel impresarios, uh, Gordon Moore, which stipulated that uh, microprocessor power will double in speed every two years. And and essentially, there's a Moore's law for politics these days, especially in the Republican Party, which is that it'll just keep getting worse and worse exponentially um, as you move through time. And as Trump becomes more and more entrenched at the top of this party, which will probably be a decade um, in a few years, and because I don't really see that changing anytime soon. So again, it's kind of a depressing picture. And you try to tell a story that not necessarily is uplifting, but but hopefully true and, and hopefully that allows you to sort of live and endure throughout it. But it, it gets harder and harder. Right. So, you know, the um, Speaker McCarthy is probably going to be a reality pretty quickly mm -hmm. here. Uh, and yeah. by the way, as far as the Pelosi stuff goes, it really is kind of astonishing. It is. Astonishing. I mean, yeah. I, I was reminded of a joke that uh, George Carlin told at the time of the OJ case. He, mm -hmm. This was a joke, but he said, I don't like to judge. Maybe she really had it coming. Uh, and <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of how they are with Pelosi. They're like, I don't know. We're not going to make any judgments. Maybe he needed to be hit, hit by a hammer. I mean, it's just yeah. incredible. But so we're headed for the Speaker McCarthy era, barring some kind of miracle you know and and in your book i think he comes across a little bit more as a weather vane than as a true believer in anything uh, oh, yeah. but but that means that the you know the jim jordans and the marjorie taylor greens and the boberts and the gosars and like everybody they're 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 going to be blowing pretty hard on that weather vane maybe you can see something yeah. about how that feels to you yeah, no, it's true. I mean, Kevin McCarthy, I, I agree, is you know, looks like he's positioned to be speaker. Um, I think Republicans will win a majority, and McCarthy has more chits and more goodwill with a lot of his members. He's worked pretty much full time over the last several years to to accrue that, and and you know, I think he will be able to sort of cash those chips after they win the majority. So, 
I don't think he's going to enjoy this experience, but I think McCarthy, from what I know of him and the time I spent with him, I mean, if he can become, if he can, you know, at least for two miserable years, be the Speaker of the House and then go through his entire life as a former Speaker, I mean, that probably would redeem, you know, all of the indignities he's put himself through. And and look, he, you're right, he is a weather vane. He's not a man of great principle. I mean, I wouldn't call him a conservative or anything. He just sort of he wants the job. He is willing to do anything to be to get that job title. And, you know, again, I, I think he will kowtow very much to the real power of the party, which is Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan and Donald Trump and and all those who support them, which is where the, in the center of gravity of the party is right now. So, again, I don't know how he's going to do it. It doesn't look like it's going to be a lot of fun, but this is what he want, wants and this is what he's worked towards. And I think he's obviously, you know, so close he can taste it right now. So I'm guessing... You know, he's not going to sort of risk anything by saying something like, uh, you know, condemning an attack on the now speaker's uh, 82-year-old husband because, you know, who knows that who that would trigger and that could uh, that could lose him the brass ring. So, yeah, Kevin McCarthy is, I think, an incredibly emblematic figure uh, of this era and will probably continue to be going forward. So one of your now colleagues at the Atlantic is a guy named Peter Weiner, who's a former Republican policy guy and a real never Trumper. And he's written some really interesting things about this same question that you're looking at. And mm-hmm. and one thing Weiner says is that it's a cognitive dissonance issue, even just for regular rank and file Trump voters. You know, they voted for somebody in 2016, maybe in some cases because they couldn't stand the thought of voting for Hillary Clinton. And then they don't want to think, well, I did a dumb thing. You know, mm-hmm. I did something stupid and I voted for somebody who's completely unqualified. So they adjust their cognition to sort of mm-hmm. take in the idea that, no, this is OK. And then it's sort of this constant downward slope from there. They they adjust yeah. and adjust and adjust and adjust. And is that does that strike you as true even at some of these higher echelons of power that they just have been constantly adjusting their expectations rather than saying, ah, I really have gotten on the wrong train here and I'm headed in a yeah. really bad direction? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do think that the tribalism, which is what this is, I mean, that leads people to make all kinds of rationalizations, um, because at the end of the day, you know, there are a lot of people who are just, you know, they were born into the Republican team, or they consider themselves big supporters of the Republican team. And, you know, it's also kind of true that that those who kind of the marks of, of cons, people who uh, you know, con men kind of dupe into giving them all their money or whatever, are often the last people to be willing to admit that, wow, they really had been taken and they really sort of screwed up and maybe it's time to reverse course. So, yeah, people get very, very stubborn when their either intelligence or choices are, are questioned like this. And, and you know, it, it's always simplistic to compare politics to sports, but, well, it's Connecticut, so I can say this. I'm, I'm a New England Patriots fan, right? I, I wrote a book on the NFL a few years ago, and it is uh, not an easy team to root for. I mean, because they win and everybody hates us. But you know, there were cheating scandals, and Tom Brady, when when he was with the Pats, was was not the most likable guy in the world. And and yet, you know, you, you sort of you love your children unconditionally, right? And there is some kind of blind loyalty test that we sort of put ourselves through, and are willing to endure because we want to be seen as being on on a side that that's noble and admirable and in doing the right things. But again, it doesn't have to be pretty. Right. And there's not no connection between Belichick and Trump, too. So it's not a tortured <laughs> analogy at all. Um, That's true. That's so true. 
I, this will have to be the last question. I, I hope I can ask the right one. But I mean, one of the things that I think Pressure's I on, Colin. Yeah, that we, well, we've all looked at this. Like I know I, I, I am very fond of and very close to at least one highly principled Republican who worked in uh, the mm-hmm. Bush 41 administration. He worked for Reagan and was a big Bill Barr fan and stuff like that. And, you know, when I talk to him, I'm often thinking, how much longer can you stay in this party? How, mm. how much longer can you're nothing like any of the things that that Mark and I are talking about right now? You're right. nothing like that, and you know people like that too. And oh, you know, they're, so many. they're probably not going to join the forward party with Andrew Yang and Christine Todd Whitman because no. then then they'll be irrelevant to use Lindsay's term. Can you just talk yeah. a little bit? Like, what about the Republicans who still aren't crazy and are somehow yeah. or other like holding their breath? What about them? Well, yeah, I mean, I know a ton of them. And, and not only that, I mean, I, I've had more common cause with conservatives and with principled conservatives, people like Pete Weiner and, and you know, I'm sure, you know, a number of people like him over the last few years than, than I've ever had before. I mean, I think conservatism, I mean, we're not talking about conservatism here because, you know, Donald Trump is not a classic conservative, conservative at all. I mean, he's, he's, he's basically decadent. He's morally kind of bankrupt. He... You know, he, he doesn't follow rules of law, rules of morality, traditional morality, and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the, the disease here is republicanism. And, and I think, you know, many of the conservatives I know and I'm friends with and talk to on a regular basis either don't consider themselves Republicans anymore. They're, they're in most cases, probably independents or maybe in some rare cases, Democrats. But, you know, maybe they've just let their registration lapse and, and they sort of... Um, you know, they might be inclined to vote for a Republican who looks might who, who might look more uh, palatable, um, you know, if they're on the ballot, like Glenn Youngkin, the, you know, the governor of Virginia, who sort of a Trumpist, but he kind of hit it well. And, and in a very good Republican year, won the governor's office in a blue state last year. Um, and now, you know, really gave a really bad answer about the Pelosi attack over the weekend and kind of said, OK, so who is this guy? Um, but no, I, I think. Look, I, I think I've I've been, I guess, heartened, if there is a heartening part of this, by a number of really sort of true and principled conservatives who, you know, I now have a lot more common cause with. So I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I think the 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 disease is more centered in the Republican Party than what we would traditionally cons- consider to be a conservative mindset. Right. I mean, the, the problem with all that is, and I think McCarthy is one who says to you, well, where's the Jeff Flake statue here at the U.S. Right, Capitol? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no re- yeah. no obvious reward within the circumference uh, of the world Absolutely. of the Capitol for being Liz Cheney or Jeff Flake. Correct. I mean, look, I, I think look, I think history will treat them well. I think their grandchildren will remember them well if, if you know, they bother to read history books and people write about them. But again, I mean, this is this is also from the book. I mean, the number of people who would just sort of roll their eyes and just look look at me with complete contempt when I would ask them, how do you want to be remembered? I mean, what about the the sort of verdict of history? I mean, they couldn't care less about that because, you know, McCarthy's, you know, where is the statue to Jeff Flake? I mean, that that was contemptuous. It was like, no one remembers Jeff Flake. He's just out, you know, living with himself somewhere. I mean, how fun could that be? So, yeah, I mean, that sort of goes to the next level nihilism that we're talking about. And again, sort of talks about wh- where the, the path is is headed um, for the Republican Party. All right. This conversation has been so much fun and I've totally used up my clock. But Mark Leibovich is the author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Believe me, we have not even begun to tap the kinds of rich anecdotes and observations that are there. So feel free to run out and get that book right now. And Mark, thanks for doing this. Colin, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. 
and they say